welcome to our recap. This is a review of episode 41 through 60, followed by some Q&A with me and the players. So if you don't want to listen to like 20 hours of content, you can listen to recaps to get caught up. Also, a whole crazy lot happens in this game and the details come back around. So if you take a listening break and come back, it's probably worth a listen to hit these recap episodes. I can never tell how much longer the story will go, but I don't think there will be that many episodes left. So this is our last review before the finale. Maybe. I say that not really knowing when the finale is because we haven't recorded it yet. So, okay. The last 20 times on Carrots and Suffering. Our heroes retreat to House Lunari, having been declared enemies of the Fairy Queen. Sable is removed as Baroness. Jalen's father becomes obligated to try to kill her due to a bad deal with the Fairy Queen, and Silpha is advised to stay away from court. Our heroes complete the first part of their larger mission, calling forth a powerful spirit of hope to inhabit a golem champion of stone capable of cutting a swath through the thorns. They name the champion after their deceased tutor, Muriel, and plan to test it by cutting their way to the Glade of Glindy, another enemy of the Fairy Queen, and to talk to her fairy tree, the lawyers and notaries between humans and fairies. Our heroes recruit Jessica Evans and prepare to head into the thorns. Sable confronts Cora, a druid trying to get close to her, as a potential assassin. But Cora Lunari turns out to be head over heels for Sable in just a very aggressive flirt. Meanwhile, Cora finds, and hides, evidence dumped on Lunari grounds of the murder of druid Master Wu, who appears to have fallen victim to the Fairy Queen assassins as punishment for his attempt to kill Sable. Sable digs up the remains and finds the spell components for reincarnation that Wu may have intended to use on her. She sends them off to her house in hopes that Yennefer will use them to reincarnate Wu. Silpha and Leslie Evans make their dating official, but Lord Mentor, in an attempt to control Silpha's growing rebellious streak, summons her to return to court, threatening her participation in the Thorns venture. On the upside, Mentor forces her former lover Cygnus Swanson to apologize for his past behavior. Leslie offers to impersonate Silpha at court to free her up to continue the party's mission and unveils the existence of an ancient mason archmage, trading magic items for information on House Mason. Cutting through the thorns to Glindy, our heroes arrive to find that the fairy has been murdered and her hut of preserved magic fruit burned and destroyed. They talk to the fairy tree and learn that Kylan Evans, Jalen's father, has taken a three-mark assassin job to get out of his bad deal. The first mark was Glindy. After killing her, Kylan left the grove headed north toward the second. In the process, Jalen learns that she, like Silpha, is a changeling and that her mother resides in the Fairy Queen's court. She also learns of the deals both her parents made on her behalf when she was born. Glindy's tree also reveals that King Fenrir is somehow still alive. Hoping to waylay Kylan, the party strikes off north to discover the Mason family crypt. The crypt is infested with vampiric thorns creatures born from an infected fairy tree, the roots of which pierced the vampire king's heart sometime long ago. Our heroes kill all the vampires they find, including the ancient vampiric Lord Mason, who had been working against the fairy queen for over a millennium. They then find evidence of an ancient pact that vampire Lord Mason, the fairy queen, and the lycanthropic King Fenrir signed together, guaranteeing peace between their factions. This pact, when broken, caused the thorns to overwhelm the kingdom. Evidence clearly points to the Fairy Queen as the aggressor and pact-breaker. The Fairy Queen's messenger brings Sable an opportunity to spin a new deal and name her price. 
It appears the queen is desperate to regrow the circle of the moon beyond just Sable herself. In the deal, Sable removes the trio from the queen's enemy list and negotiates the return of champion Helena and her sister Cassandra from the Fey Wild, purged of their previous deals. In return, she must induct five new members into the circle, including Helena and Cass. From Cass, Sable learns that Yennefer Varathy traded her mortal heart to the Fairy Queen for her training in politics. She was not freed when Sable released the rest of the druids from her circle, but rather returned to town opportunistically with the 300 freed souls. Our heroes return home to regroup before heading to the castle. They discover that Lorelei Varathy was murdered by a beast attack at House Drury. Since our heroes left, Thorn Beasts started systematically attacking the Great Houses, a fact that greatly benefits Yennefer. Sable encounters Yennefer at Lorelei's funeral, where the now head of House Verathi uses the reincarnation components to resurrect Lorelei in front of the whole kingdom. Kingdom politics quickly spin out of control as the attacks accelerate, and Yennefer begins to consolidate power and position herself to oust Lord Mentor. Our heroes discover that the source of the attacks is actually fetches. Yennefer has found a way to twist their nature, unlock their hidden power, and turn them into abhorrent monsters of wild magic and destruction. Our heroes defeat the fetches of Lady Mason and Byron, presumably created when the Queen's Fey army attacked House Mason. Our heroes thwarted the family's abduction, but the fetches remained in the kingdom. The public information that fairies have replaced nobles with evil fetches threatens to send the kingdom into a panic and forces a lord's council. This plays directly into Yennefer's hands to get elected regent and depose House Mentor. Despite the party's long-suffering antagonism with House Mentor, Yennefer's tactics are just too heartless, so the party works to help House Mentor against House Verathi. Sable returns Yennefer's lost heart, recruiting her and her two fetch beasts as party allies. Silver recruits the Masons to support Mentor, at least in the short term, and Jalen recruits her father, Lord Evans, to her side, ensuring the status quo is maintained for a bit longer. These are just the main plot points, though. In addition, Jalen and her fiancé, Lynn Pornino, deepen their relationship, and Lynn resolves to follow her into the Thorns despite his duties. Jalen's father, Kylan, is missing, believed to have headed to the castle to kill a changeling sage named Drossel, who is still alive after a hundred years. Jessica Evans meets Iris Lunari, and the two of them elope, potentially positioning Jalen to inherit her house if Leslie doesn't. Jalen also discovers that using willow seeds planted from the great fairy trees will prevent thorns from encroaching, and begins to teach houses how to use them to protect properties and discontinue the unjust endangerment of thorn cutters. Sable meets her father, Mirkwood, the heart render of the Winter Court, the fairy capable of removing human hearts and emotions, and discovers that he blames himself for Sable's mother's death. Mirkwood gives Sable a token of his love for her mother, a pendant that will defend her against the dangers of the fairy wild. He asks that, when she has gained the power, she kill him and reincarnate her mother, using her heart, which he has kept alive. Cora Lunari writes a love letter to Sable, which proves extremely awkward for Sable. The Mentor family wants to reinstate Sable as Baroness, since Jennifer is proving to be terrible for the kingdom's stability, but Sable's not interested. Sable also learns from her father that the last target of Kylan's assassin deal, Drossel, is actually her half-brother. Sable recruits help from him. Silpha resolves being caught between three love interests. Byron Mason is kind and adorable, but attached to a family with a dark past, and is currently in a perilous political situation due to recent events. Leslie Evans is powerful and hyper-intelligent and shares her interests, but not terribly romantic. And the fairy E. Elamis is fated to be the perfect match for a fairy version of Silpha, 
which she doesn't necessarily want. Sylpha's actions to ensure Leslie gets her desired job title have the unintended consequence of ending their courtship. A conversation with Byron reassures Sylpha, and she accepts his proposal. Sylpha's father reveals himself to be nobility of the Summer Fairy Court, and offers to give Sylpha his mantle, which comes with incredible power and untold ancient agreements she can't hope to fully understand without being a fairy herself. And finally, after saving the mentors with the help of Sylpha's parents, the regent elevates House Lunari to nobility, making Sylpha the heir apparent to a baron. Now we're going to do Q&A. Well, we have some fan questions. I have a favorite, so how about how about I start, because yep. I have an opinion. <laughs> um, okay. Do you ever think of past sessions and second-guess decisions made or thought that one different dice roll or one different decision would have made a big difference? If you could change one past decision or roll, what would it be, and how do you think things would be different? I mean, I've definitely lost sleep over this game's app, you know, following a game session and, like, rolling it over my head and having some regrets. I absolutely have one role that I would change. That was the role that I made to try to convince Master Wu that things were okay for, Aww. like, all these people coming out. I rolled an effing one, and oh, it would have been ones. nice to, like, have, yeah, I rolled two ones. Just one of those. Just any one of those would have been great so that I had an actual opportunity to spend time talking to a druid. <laughs> that would have been nice. Things that could have gone differently that made could have made a big difference in the game. I wonder if things had gone differently with Wu. In that yeah, I mean, maybe that. he wouldn't have tried to come kill me. Maybe Sable wouldn't have gotten as paranoid as she did. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's a lot there's a lot on that one one. Well, I frequently second guess decisions I've made or after a recording session. It's like when, when you have a conversation with, with someone and you think of the perfect comeback or the perfect thing to say, like 10 minutes after the conversation has ended, I frequently experience moments like that. Yeah. I don't think I could choose one different dice roll. I mean, like there are infinite points in the game where the game would have taken a different direction if if the outcome of the dice had been different. Like the perception roll when we were outside of... Silpha's house, for example, if if we had perceived three were-rats in the house, then the, the subsequent events with the guild could have been entirely different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so many so many points like that that I don't I think it's a fun thought exercise to mm -hmm. to talk about how how the game could have been different, but at the same time, I don't want to dwell on mm -hmm. <laughs> what's happened has happened. <laughs> Right. We've had conversations about this, like things, things that sort of linchpinned. I mean, the, the two that I, that I call to mind are the, if Vincent had realized Sable was in a wolf form when he first went to try to kill her and yeah. then attacked her, he would have been attacking an ally of the fairy queen and would have run off maddened into the thorns, you know, and that would have been the end of Vincent. <laughs> and, you know, but obviously that's not how that went. I don't know that future events with the guild would have gone terribly differently, but certainly the, the flavor of that whole thing would have changed quite a bit and the other one that nate mentioned one was that if we hadn't fucked with the pornino horses that were going to go to the mentors 
then Faust probably would have won a marriage contract with Harriet Mentor and mm -hmm. probably would have been assassinated in short order, you know, and that would mm -hmm. have changed some things uh, because, you know, then Lynn would have probably been the one given that contract and his relationship with Jalen would never have happened. So it's actually a really good thing that we did that to those horses and we can never talk about it. <laughs> we saved lives with mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> So as a dungeon master, I think there's a real art to when do you call for a role, when do you not call for a role, what do you set the DC at? And I, I do think that there have been some moments that I wish I could do differently, which have mostly been situations where I should have called for a role and didn't. And the one that really comes to mind was the conversation between Sable and Gina Lunari. Because I, I knew going into it, okay, one person is hostile. I just role-played it and never called for a role. And I think there's a brief moment in there where I realized, like, oh, man, I messed that up. I don't have too many of those over the course of, like, a 60 hours of podcasting, which is, like, 120 hours of actually sitting around playing. But it's it's difficult. And even after doing it for multiple decades, I still screw it up. Yeah, I think the thing I lost the most sleep over isn't something I would have changed, and I don't think it would have changed the story, but it was it was when Jalen attacked Kylan in the dojo when he was trying to kill when he had to try to kill her and she should have just left. But I it was in retrospect and we talked about it afterwards. I was like, it was actually pretty true to her character to to, mm -hmm. to do what she did, but it felt so weird to me. And I yeah, had a lot of regret about that. But Okay, what effect has the setting of Fenrir, being physically isolated due to Cursed Thorns, had on each character? And from a game mechanics perspective, do you think it's enabled the character intrigue-driven style you're aiming for? So I will say that one of the things that I was counting on for pushing the characters into the intrigue was this Barrier of the Thorns. Now, as a Dungeon Master piece of advice, when you put something like the Thorns out there, you've given your players an ultimate goal from the beginning of the campaign. So don't ever create something arbitrarily isolating to them, but this was a force that I had hoped would create the intrigue and the character-driven, decision-based kind of story progression that we've experienced. I don't know how successful we've been or if you would you know, contribute that to the Thorns, because I also picked people who valued this kind of game. If I could compare my experiences playing in the first campaign in which you ran this setting, I would say that we we as characters really leaned into things like, you know, we didn't go out at night for the longest time. The Thorns really are dangerous. None of us were taking the idea of exploring them lightly versus like i think in the last campaign our our group of of players many of us who were complete newbies to the game were just like all right off we go cutting these thorns down <laughs> and i believe nate changed the mechanics surrounding the thorns quite a bit yep, to make sure yep. that we couldn't do that make sure time. they were uh, much more dangerous <laughs> yeah i mean I, th I think we've had discussions before about about the cultural implications the thorns have brought to Fenrir like they've been in, they've been there for 80 years and it's become very endemic to the culture mm -hmm. and inherent to our nature our characters natures because of the mutations it has definitely become a deep rooted cultural setting but i also what i like about the confinement is that it really 
made a cycle around on relationships, especially mm-hmm. with NPCs. Whereas, in, you know, in a normal campaign, mm-hmm. if you've got a party going from town to town to town to town, you know, they may or may not go back and interact with people again. Mm-hmm. So, so we never had one-time encounters in this game, and I think that was really in- conducive to developing those relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for my character, it has a tremendous impact because playing a druid, this is literally the only nature that Sable has ever known. And the concept of nature outside of the thorns is still pretty lost on her. So there is a part of her love of nature and her appreciation of nature that is tied up in the fact that the thorns are there and that the world is a twisted place in its own way. It's, it's interesting to think like she was literally born into this, unlike some of the others who can see the, the thorns as being a twisting of what nature should be when this is what nature is for her. If Sable encountered druids outside of Fenrir and like her animal forms would be kind of fucked up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, because all the animals what she's ever seen. What do you mean? This seen. is a cave bear. Cave bears don't have dragonfly wings. <laughs> Cave bears only have four legs. I just imagine like these other druids being like, "Oh, honey, mm. <laughs> the important thing is you try." <laughs> you know? Even the fact that it stayed autumn and it was more and more and more autumn, and things were far more fertile and rich than they should have been, and the fairy queen can create weather. I mean, all of that is something that's like, yeah, I mean, that's that's what nature is to her, which is very different than for most druids. Fenrir is like a weird microcosm of climate change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had spent a lot of time thinking about like how the, the physical isolation of Fenrir has impacted Silpha. I think like a lot of wizards, she's steeped in this love of books and lore and knowledge and just has an insatiable curiosity to learn new things. And then like coupled with her background as someone who's Family stories are steeped with tales of like travel and discovery and adventure. As a result, I think like the isolation is something that's left her with this deep feeling of, of yearning and like a feeling that she's missing out. There's a whole world out there and the, the knowledge and experiences it contains she wants to explore. Until she gets that opportunity, she, she feels incomplete. But like also, on the other hand, her upbringing's given her a certain level of pragmatism and the inescapable isolation has also made her form like really deep bonds with people that she feels like are kindred spirits like sable and jalen like and as brave as she purportedly is i don't think she's willing to step out into the the wider world without you know maintaining some kind of connection and support she'd be unwilling to completely sever ties from everyone she knows i think for example when when byron expresses a willingness to take his children and go with her out into that world if it becomes a possibility. That's a deeply meaningful sentiment to her, and, and like it definitely captures her heart. Between sessions, how do you prepare for the next session, and why does your approach work or not work for you? I'll answer that from the Dungeon Master perspective. I'm a firm believer in not overplanning. Mm-hmm. Because no plan survives characters. It just doesn't. Sorry, happen. not sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, it's part of the joy, honestly. I really lean into collective storytelling, and I really want your decisions to matter. And so I never plan more than about two sessions ahead. I have multiple ideas where the story might be going. 
I don't solidify them until we're maybe two-ish sessions out from when I think it's going to happen, because I try to, to flex to what the players do. I almost get the impression that your your sense of planning is more just to be ready for, <laughs> like, you're trying to anticipate what we're going to do, you know, in a few different possibilities, mm-hmm. and you just need to be ready for whatever scenario. But if it, if it wasn't for a need to be ready for it, that you probably wouldn't plan much. Yeah, no, that's true. And I, I think part of it is, too, like, I have done every kind of dungeon mastering from way too much planning to way too little planning. The nice thing is I feel like I've gotten pretty good at improv. So many decades of doing this Mm -hmm. helps. It is still tricky, right? And the more freedom I give you, Mm -hmm. the harder it is. And I really wanted a game that was defined by you. You know, I built the parameters and responded to you accordingly. And I always had this idea of this big plot arc. I do really like the fact that you keep saying many decades, like there's been 13 decades that you've been doing this, as opposed to a couple. <laughs> I just want to let everybody know I'm actually 150. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. All those, all those making fun of people for being old, it, it, it's it's just a cover. Got it. That's what it That's is. What it That's is. what it is. Yeah. yeah. This is something that we've actually talked about, how we each prepare in between sessions, and we all have very different approaches. And a lot of that has to do with roleplay styles and kind of how we learn to roleplay. So for me, you know, I do not spend a huge amount of time prepping. I, I remind myself of what happened the last time. I put myself in the mindset of Sable and I go. And a lot of that comes from the fact that I've been roleplaying for many decades. <laughs> for, a few, for, for more than two decades, let's put it that way. And so there, there is part of that is that, you know, I've had that behind me. But also, I spent a lot of time in LARP, in parlor LARPs, playing Vampire the Masquerade. And, and in that world, getting ready for a game really is just like getting in character. And once you're in character, you just have to respond to things as they come at you, which is different than how other people do it. After a recording session, my brain's usually reeling. And then like when I'm playing a regular tabletop game, I usually take on the, the role of the note note taker. Like both Sandra and, and Nate have known this from from mm-hmm. games they've run that I have played in. And so these these things kind of like become combined for me in the way I prepare for a session. I just I actually keep a Google Doc that's called like Silpha Next Actions and, and in it I just I'll jot the gist of what I remember happening in a session and, and some brief emotional responses to those things. And I kind of make a plan and bullet points of like what my character wants to do next or what their emotional headspace is. But I have to say like I've stolen some of my my favorite preparation methods from other people and that would one of them is from from nate i stole from nate's methods of, of creating what he calls like a moving world a, a world that doesn't revolve a hundred percent around the heroes and and what they're doing and i started like trying to create dynamic characters that try to respond to what's happened in the, the game world in the same way like i try to reflect on how would my my character respond to an event in light of like their personal goals and motivations or like how do things change or like reinforce the the views they already have of the world? And and I generally just find that exercise to be really enjoyable. And then another thing that I, I, I stole from Mandy is writing little character memory vignettes. 
that's something Mandy does that I think is really cool and is, is fun. And also letter writing, although most of the time I don't read them as letters, I just end up using the contents and, and some of the phrasing and, and conversations. And I feel that that works well for Silpha because I feel like the character's voice is oftentimes a lot more more formal than mine. So it makes it easier to to slip into her way of vocalizing things. Yeah, the the memory vignettes is something that I I did with Jalen that hadn't really done before, and it was something that rose up out of because what what gets me going on gaming and the collective storytelling is is I I am all about the character relationships and character development and and letting those those aspects of a story drive a plot rather than the other way around. And obviously there are things that are happening in this world that don't have to do with us, as Julie said. But um, I, so it, when it comes to usually those memories and I, it's, it's like a six page Google document of these, of these very specific memories. I don't do, I didn't do like a sweeping backstory for her. I just did these very specific short memories, the way that people remember things, the way you remember your childhood, you know, there's very specific things that you can hone in on, but you can't remember your whole childhood. So I just sort of treated it like that. But the way those memories, a lot of them came up is almost in retrospect, like we would do a gaming session and there would be some interaction, either among the players or among or with Jalen and an NPC, and there would be some sort of aspect to that relationship that would sort of strike me. And I'd be like, okay, well, what's behind that? And then, and then the memory would come in and, you know, and sometimes that would lead to constructing some other memories for her. Or sometimes it would be isolated, but it would just, it just sort of became a building block modular makeup for her. And, you know, sometimes those memories come up in game and most of the time they don't, but they're always sort of informing who she is as a person, the way our memories form us as people <laughs> and guide the way that we interact with the world. Um, I, I have also obviously written a few letters i follow up game sessions thinking pretty hard about this game and what's coming next and i'll take a lot of notes on that i don't take a lot of notes on gameplay because i tried to do that with sandra's ravenloft game and that's how you end up with cryptic notes like chicken pants you know they don't make any sense (laughs) chicken pants what does this mean you know but that's how also how you end up with an excellent book of quotes from game sessions it is how you end up with an excellent book of quotes. that's what i did in that ravenlock campaign is i started writing down the funny things people said instead and and that was much more rewarding but for fenrir i mean there's the benefit of we have the, the recordings so we don't necessarily have to take notes on on what happened but it, but so instead i look forward on my note taking and i actually have a luddite book that i write in um, for this and where i write down thoughts like what's coming how jalen wants to try to handle it and i'll try to imagine the scenarios that might be coming and sometimes they're more or less accurate well and i, I think what i really enjoy about that like it never would have occurred to me to do do something like that until you you shared this was an exercise that you were doing but what i really like about it is i feel i'm i'm pretty bad in improv and i can never like come up with a story on the spot like mm-hmm. so like just having those little things if they happen i have something that's that's prepared or, or like a, a building block to draw off of yeah, and, and yeah. i enjoy that yeah, and I definitely, I write better than I talk, so so I do do a lot of writing. Again, sometimes it comes up and sometimes it doesn't, and it's always sort of a loose, adaptable thing, because I try to predict what's going to happen next, but I am not Sandra, Nate, or Julie. I don't know how how things are going to go or how characters or NPCs are going to respond, and so so it's sort of, a, it's, it's like a framework of anticipation of a few different possibilities, but, you know, I don't... I, 
like Nate said, it's you can't nail it down. If you try to nail it down, mm-hmm. you wind up with something like really forced and contrived and you know we don't want that so one other aspect of this that i would add is sort of the role of meta knowledge in the way that you have your character interact with the story and when i was a wee lad meta was always bad you'd be like hey you're planning a country bumpkin with an intelligence of seven where did you learn that trolls have an allergy to fire you're cheating essentially but As I have gotten a little bit older and I've tried multiple game systems, the sign of a really good game system is that the setting and the rules match up to create something with the right feel, right? So like if you're going to play a comic book superhero game, you need to expect a comic book superhero game and take actions that are comic book superhero. Mismatches happen on accident sometimes, like we were playing Dread. And I was playing like who I absolutely thought was the comedy relief character, but I wouldn't necessarily do the horror movie things, right? And that's not the point of dread. You're supposed to do the horror movie things for, and this is the takeaway, right? A little bit of meta is a good idea because you always want to have a little bit of a gut check of like, what kind of story are we telling here? What are the themes of this story? And the, the most important time to, to have that is at the beginning but it's always worth coming back and just doing a check. And the reason I advise that is because some of the toughest games you'll ever sit through are the ones where two people show up with just completely different perspectives on the game. Mm. I want a dark noir fantasy, and I want a comedy hijinks. Those characters and probably those players might butt heads a little bit. And so I always recommend like a little bit of meta in your game prep. For us, for example, there's going to be a lot of first-person role-play, and, <laughs> and and I think it's also interesting that you you had sort of envisioned jumping around in time a lot more than we than we've done, like by months or weeks or whatever. It, it, but it turned out like with with doing the intrigue, you can't really fudge over the steps of that. Like you're you're manipulating people and you're manipulating situations and you have to you have to do it. You actually have to do those things. You can't just say two weeks later, yes, I managed to do that. It's like, well how did you do it? You know? The result of that was a pace that I have to describe now as very fantasy. You know, like <laughs> your characters have been through so much. They're halfway through the like one to twenty level progression of character classes and it's been like you know like three four months tops and so i originally i was like and we'll do little we'll do little vignettes and we'll skip chunks of time to make it more realistic and in the end i don't think that's what we wanted i think there was just too much interesting things to to do in the interim So a question that has to do more with podcast uh what is the editing process like how much is cut out is it a joint project or a solo endeavor? Gosh, you know, like I would say anybody out there who is thinking about doing a podcast, understand that it is a lot of work for every hour that we put out. We've probably put in 12 to 14 hours worth of editing. And there are mechanical things you can do to make it a little less painful. So like recording in a kitchen near a glass window <laughs> with all of us together on four mics created a lot of like audio bleed. There's always just a little bit of Nate in Sandra's mic and a little bit of Sandra in Mandy's mic. And it makes it so like you can't play around with your audio as much. A little and bit of Sandra in my mic. 
Exactly. And then you have to spend extra time kind of cleaning that up and it get, it does get messy. When we, when coronavirus happened, we experimented with recording separately and now it is so much faster to clean our audio. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we, we did have to make a decision to sacrifice tabletop quality for that. And I mm -hmm. think I think it's worthwhile just because it did literally cut our editing time in half, half. with the cleanup. And it also let us, because we're, all, we're recording on four separate tracks, if two people speak at once and it's both both of those lines are important, we can separate them out, you know, on the mm -hmm. on the episode play. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we couldn't do that when we were doing, you know, Prentice recording around the table. But there, we did have to, we did sacrifice a certain quality of round the table gameplay for that. Mm-hmm. And you know it's something we all agreed to do that it was it was what we needed to mm -hmm. do, but but yeah, it did change it. <laughs> yeah, and I was I was gonna describe the the whole editing process as basically a team endeavor with Nate as the final editor. Like after a recording session, we we all upload our audio files to a shared drive, and then one of us will take the compilation of tracks and do like a first pass to clean up the audio, and then the cleaned up audio gets passed on to Nate for for further editing, and he does most of the the higher level like final decisions about what's cut yeah it's very time consuming and having more than one person who is able and willing to work on it really helps and the things that get cut are non sequitur jokes dirty jokes Aww. most dirty jokes <laughs> except the ones that we save for um, the end right yeah. yeah yeah i do sometimes stick them in at the end yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be an outtake <laughs> <laughs> and then the other things that get cut are like character dithering if we come up with several plans and then we dismiss two of them and go with the third one i tend to cut out the creation of the two plans we don't do mm -hmm. which makes us seem super decisive it makes it seem like we're real sharp and on it all the time <laughs> but yeah so <laughs> And I, I don't have to cut a lot, truthfully. It's the more we record, the less I have to cut. Mm -hmm. So when we were first doing this, we'd record for like three hours to get one hour. Now we record for two and we get an hour 40. Yeah. There's not a lot of cleanup anymore that gets cut. Or long pauses for bathroom breaks, you know, like because we just keep it running. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I don't leave those in for everybody's enjoyment. Every now and then Robbie still makes noise. He was howling earlier. Y'all didn't hear it. He was just like out and out howling in my front room. What action role decision do you talk about most when you share the adventure with others? Are there quotes from a session that have entered your lexicon or a pivotal <laughs> moment that you love talking about? Boy, howdy. <laughs> of course there's, there's quotes from sessions that have entered our lexicon. Like, opulent but modest. modest. Baby, Baby steps after I swear to God, anytime I hear Baby Steps now, I, I think yep. Baby Steps, Master Wu. Yep, I do too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's a phrase that comes up a lot. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know what we talk about the most when we share it with others. I mean, we just tell them, listen to it, listen to it. <laughs> and you, True. by the way, listener, should be telling other people, you should listen to this. Just okay, listen to that's it. it. It's so great. It's so good. I don't, I don't know what's most illustrative of the game to like... There's so much that happens. I mean, it took us yeah. 10 minutes to summarize some of these episodes. Like, what well, what would I tell someone about? Like, what's the quintessential moment? I don't think there's like a quintessential moment to tell people about. It's more like the feel of the whole podcast yeah. that we tell people about. Yeah. Like, that it's an entry campaign, that it's first-person roleplay. It's, it's heavy on the roleplay. 
you know, and that we're really into characters and relationships. And it makes it very atmospheric. Yeah, we're not murder hobos. We're not we're not telling that kind of story. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that kind of story, but it's just not the kind of story we're telling. And so I think probably when it comes to talking to talking about it to other people, it's more like the feel of the thing rather than anything mm-hmm. in particular within it. I've definitely shared some of Nate's unique monsters. <laughs> or like favorite mechanical moment. Mm-hmm. The period monster. The period sure. monster. Yeah, that one resonated with us on a personal level. <laughs> the blood golem. <laughs> yep. <laughs> one of the things that stands out to me is that we're all teenagers trying to figure out our way in the world, and I think mm-hmm. that's a pretty interesting side on mm-hmm. on this is that you know we're not seasoned adventurers in any way. You know, we we went to finishing mm-hmm. school, for God's sake. In a lot of ways, this campaign feels like a very elaborate backstory mm-hmm. for, for, like, characters who are, you know, going to be going through something later, <laughs> you know, something, they're going to go through something else in their 30s, and, like, this mm-hmm. campaign is their backstory. Sometimes that's how this feels, but, it, you know, it's a hell of a backstory, so it's great. <laughs> So from from Andrew, did you expect fetches to be this prevalent or this much of an issue? When a when a smoking gun is introduced in one scene, <laughs> you know it's going to be used in another one. I don't know that I thought they were going to be this prevalent, but I, I thought they would definitely be a a major component of the story. I recognized concept of fetches from other fairy stories. I mean, there's a there's a fetch issue in jonathan strange and mr norrell mm-hmm. you know so i mean there, there are other fairy tales that involve fetches or you know people you know these constructs that have replaced people who have been kidnapped and so i didn't know when who was it It was ophelia was the first yep. fetch we mm-hmm. discovered you know mm-hmm. when that came up i don't know that i knew that wasn't a one-time thing yeah i i you know i wasn't surprised when it became when it became a more prevalent issue <laughs> but but i I didn't necessarily think in the moment, oh, this is going to be a major kingdom upheaval issue. Yeah. I, I, I just wasn't thinking about it that much. <laughs> Completely taken off guard. I did not expect it at all. Ophelia being a fetch made me go, what the hell? What are we dealing with here? I had no clue. And then, of course, immediately I was like, all right, how many other people are fetches? You're all fetches, aren't you? You're a fetch. <laughs> I'm a fetch. I don't even know that I'm a fetch. Oh, shit. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there was that moment of, okay, well, we don't know who's fetches, and we can't go finding them. We can't have fetches suspecting that they're fetches because then they're going to get psychotic. And so it was sort of like, we just got to let this lie. <laughs> you know. So it, it was hard to say whether how obvious it, an issue it was going to become, but mm-hmm. I, guess, I guess maybe it should have been a little more obvious in the moment. And, and I always knew there were fetches because I drew a lot of inspiration from the world of darkness changeling the lost game which Mm. really built a lot of character backstory around fetches and so like they i knew they were always going to be a part of the game and the first time i pulled them out i knew it was going to be a big it was going to be a big shock like how would you have known they were Mm -hmm. there honestly Mm -hmm. and then after that i just sort of knew like okay there some percentage of this kingdom isn't even real Mm mm-hmm and you just kind of like work through what that would mean. They're tricky as a plot device, though, because it's too tempting to deus ex machina them in in mm. places. I, that's what I was wondering if that was going to start happening. Like important NPCs were going to get killed 
surprisingly easily because they turned out to be fetches and and that was just sort of like a oh shit is that what's Mm going to start happening (laughs) you have to be careful that you use them very purposefully Mm -hmm. because it's it's too easy to try to write yourself out of bad story or too easy to write yourself into some bad story when you give yourself like a you know a pod person option Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or a doppelganger option there there were 10 fetches here's who they are Mm -hmm. here's which ones matter here's what could happen with them Mm -hmm. and be very careful that you don't try to retrofit them in you know after the fact Mm because it can be very can be very tempting to do so because there are all kinds of ways in which you can follow through the plan you had in mind instead of the one the players did through the use of fetches or Mm -hmm. i would say that like as long as you use them purposefully from the beginning of whenever you start your fetch-based plot, they they work really well mm-hmm. as a sort of way to ratchet up the paranoia and add to the fantasy of the game without going way over the top. So it sounds like, like when it came to the fetches, that was one thing you actually had to like cement in place early on. I mean, for for all the you you don't plan too much, that was something you had to be pretty firm with yourself on. There's always a danger when you give yourself something that is inherently going to surprise players and is inherently deceptive that you'll use it in an inappropriate opportunity Mm. so i think i had decided like there are certain groups that are fetches here's maybe three four five of them and then later on i added two three four more once you've met an npc i don't change them to a fetch that they start as a fetch Mm. Before you change the topic, one other thing that I want to say about fetches is they got us the best damn name in the entire game. Yes, it did. Thank Lorem you, Lorem Ipsum. <laughs> that is just like, I don't think anybody's ever going to top the name for an NPC. For a that fetch. That was awesome. NPC, yeah. <laughs> um, I was neither surprised nor not surprised for the fetches being prevalent, but I think the changeling, the centrality of the changeling part of the plot maybe maybe surprised me a little bit and that was one i wasn't actually sure about for several episodes because i was like oh we could do this every everybody gave me either unknown parentage or clearly described fairy parents to me (laughs) (laughs) i didn't describe fairy parents what (laughs) (laughs) they felt very fairy esque (laughs) in some of their behaviors Mm. so um, when I started, I was like, oh, we could do this. We could do this. And then I didn't fully commit to it for a couple of sessions. And then kind of when I made the decision, like, okay, one of them is going to be a changeling. That's when I solidified, like, okay, they're all three changelings. And there was always a reason the fairy queen was interested in changelings. But it it became a central feature kind of about four games in. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, there, there was there was an early hint because Fable Fable talked to her tree and the tree described Mirkwood as a short man with really great hair or, so, or something. It was like something that you said, like the way you, the way that description came out. I was like, Sable's half fairy. Right. Like, I, I, like that, I, had I had that, that thought same very thought. early. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Silpha, Silpha has caught me a little bit by surprise. I, I was actually a little bit surprised about that. But and then Jalen, I actually thought it was going to be switched. I thought I thought her real dad was going to be a fairy and her mom was going to be human. But well, then the name and the name Mirkwood itself, which I think you came up with, Sandra, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You actually came up with that name, but 
but then it wound up with the, within the context of this story and this kingdom like it was sort of a suspect name <laughs> yeah yeah and then i i was really caught off guard by silpha being a changeling i did not expect that any more than my character did yeah <laughs> had no reason to suspect one of her parents was a fairy and if i had guessed it would have been her mother mm-hmm. yeah yeah, it's interesting that we that we both thought it was flipped for each of our characters, you know. <laughs> and that's it. That's our last recap. No more recaps. Onward to the finale. 